Thank you for leading the team. I do hope you'll come on Friday and hear more stories about what God's doing. Kids, you're dismissed for Gospel Project. We hope you have a great time. Thank you to those who are teaching them. And uh, everybody else, if you would, please turn with me to Psalm 78. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, Psalm 78. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Feel free to take that and uh, turn with us there to Psalm 78. Take it home if you don't have a copy of the Bible yourself. We'll be in Psalm 78. Uh, If you're new with us today, we're spending about uh, the first half of the summer going through various uh, psalms, trying to get a sample of what's in the whole book. And so uh, last week we looked at Psalm 42, which is a a short poem. It's very solemn. And this week we're going to look at something very different within the same book of the Bible. So a, a word of warning ahead of time. So I can tell you in a little while, you were forewarned. Uh, This is a hard passage, and it's going to be a challenging sermon. So uh, pretend that you're in a very deep swimming pool, and not the kiddie pool, but we're in a deep theological pool, and it feels great. All right? Can you do that with me for the next 43 minutes or so? Yes? All right. I think if you'll hang with me, that there's something really powerful in this uh, psalm for all of us, but it will be hard work getting there. Um, If you ask the average person on the street in Tempe, those two or three weird ones that are out this time of year, if you ask them to describe what faith is, I think the most common answers you'll hear are things like this. Faith is wishful thinking. It's for foolish and ignorant people. Faith is personal and private. It doesn't belong in the public square. Do whatever you want in your own house, but keep it out of everywhere else. Faith is a person's spiritual opinions. These opinions may differ from everyone else's, and we can all be correct. Faith is abstract, unnecessary, and old-fashioned. And perhaps what I think we hear the most is faith is whatever you choose to believe. Believe whatever you want to believe, as long as it doesn't infringe on my right to believe whatever I want to believe. As long as your beliefs don't hurt anybody, then it's completely fine. Everything is open and game. Faith is fine for you. Just hold it personally and sincerely, and God will be happy with whatever you choose. It's all the same anyway. All faith paths are just different trails up the same mountain to the heavenlies and whatever's going on up there. Those are the kinds of things we'd hear faith defined as. These are the common claims today about faith. But they don't represent the faith called Christianity. That's not at all exactly what Christianity claims for itself. It says something quite different than that. In fact, we could say that's not Christianity at all. And frankly, if it was, I certainly wouldn't be a Christian. And even more, I wouldn't be giving my life trying to persuade you to follow Jesus and grow up in him. Christianity, the Bible, does not claim to be a private, individualized leap of faith. It doesn't. The Bible nowhere makes the claim 
that to follow Jesus, you have to jump out into the dark with your eyes closed and you'll don't, you won't know where you end up. Christianity claims Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christianity is objective truth. It's claiming that it's truth for all people everywhere for all time. Bigger than any culture. Christianity does not advise you to look inward for truth, but it advises you to look upward to God, outward to the Bible, and backwards to what's gone before us. It does not say look into your feelings about this. You see, Christianity, biblical Christianity, is what we might call historic faith. That is extremely different than most faith traditions you and I come in contact with. Extremely different. It's not rooted in subjective feelings or personal opinions, but rather in historic events, in things that have happened, and what meaning is attached to those events. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, welcome. We're thrilled that you're here. Understand, despite what some well-meaning Christians may have told you, the Bible does not demand or commend blind faith. It's not what it asks for. Quite the opposite. You see, Christianity is not a myth. It's not hearsay. It's not wishful thinking. It's not abstract. And it's most certainly not irrelevant to today and only for tomorrow. biblical faith, Christian faith, rests not in personal opinions, but on objective historical events and on the objective historical word that explains to us what those events mean. If you look carefully through the pages of the Bible, you'll find literally everywhere that the Christian scriptures, thank you, Abby, claim not to call for Blind, turn your brain off, faith. That actually is not faith. Faith is something different. And today, it's a great privilege from Psalm 78 to try and describe to you what the Christian faith is. Are you with me so far? All right, great. Let me see if I can illustrate this from one passage in the New Testament. Don't, you don't need to turn there. We'll see it on the screens, and then we'll go into the, the Old Testament. Listen carefully to what Paul said, who was one of the last people on the planet who should have become a follower of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. It's behind me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, what's he saying there? If you don't believe me, go ask them. This isn't superstition. This is the stuff of history. Then 
though some have fallen asleep, verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I'll jump down a little further in the passage, verse 16. Now he's going to say, here's what happened, and now here's why it matters. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. In other words, in the language we would use today, you are a fool if you believe this stuff and it didn't actually happen. Do you hear how different that is than the way we think about religion, faith, even Christianity? Do you hear it? Those are the claims not of myth and wishful thinking, but decisive historical events. It's also a warning that if the history isn't factual, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then your Christianity is worthless. It's a fraud, it should be rejected, and you should have stayed in bed today. Christians, don't be afraid to encourage people to think and to study and to look at what has happened. This is really, really really great news. Really great news. Because life today and eternity forever does not rest on fickle feelings and personal preferences. Your emotions change based on how much sleep you had last night, if you liked your breakfast this morning, what the person sitting next to you smells like. Our, our feelings are constantly changing. They are shifting, moving, unreliable. But Christianity rests on events in history described and explained in the Bible. Outside of us, much bigger than us. Events that show who God is, what he's done for us, who we are, and what we do. Which brings us to Psalm 78. Now, Psalm 78 is what's known as a, a historical psalm. It's completely different than the other psalms we've looked at so far in this series. It's, it's different in that it is seeking to say, based on all of these events that have gone before us, here's what you should do. The other psalms we've looked at have not done that. That's not the way they've been constructed. It's an immense history lesson full of compelling urgency. So to the college students and youth who are in the room, you'll appreciate this. History is often really long when you're sitting in class, right? It's like drudging on and on and on and on. That's what Psalm 72 does. That's what history does. So if you feel today like this is too long, then you're probably right. It is really long. 72 verses, one psalm. I hope you brought lunch, dinner, and a pillow, because you're going to be here a while. Thank you, Brett. Last night, um, we read the scriptures individually to our kids each night before they go to sleep, and I asked Micah after we did our normal scripture reading together, Micah, would you like to hear the psalm I'm going to preach tomorrow? Sure, Daddy. Snuggled up all on me. I started in Psalm 72. 
and he was out. Did not make it through the whole thing. So if you sleep today, that's okay. For time's sake, we're not going to read the whole thing, but let me describe to you what happens in the whole psalm. Psalm 72 is a recounting of Israel's history, and it reveals two big truths. All those 72 verses basically do two things. They describe two major issues. First, God is faithful to his promises. Psalm 72 is full, jammed full of promises from God. The psalm illustrates that God is faithful to his promises. That is really tremendously wonderful news because you are not faithful to yours. And God is faithful to his. The second thing the psalm does is it tells us to be on guard because there's a pattern to history. History is cyclical. It repeats itself. Sure, the way things look are new. People didn't have iPhones 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Can you believe that? But the, the sins you find yourself in on your iPhone are the same sins people struggled with 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago. History repeats itself over and over and over. So the psalm's function is watch out because if you're not careful, you're going to do the same stupid things that the Israelis did. That's what these 72 verses do. God keeps his promises and... History repeats itself, so watch out. So let's take those two ideas and chat through them for our remaining time. First, God's faithful to his promises. God makes many promises, tons of them, hundreds of them, maybe thousands. But at the end of the day, they all come down to one big daddy, amazingly wonderful promise. And it's this. God's promise has always been that he would create and redeem a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation who would enjoy his good presence and share his image forever. That's what God's about. That's the big promise that encapsulates all the other promises God makes. Let me say it again. God's promise has always been that he would create and rescue for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. By the way, look around. There's fulfillment of that in this room. There's the seeds of it happening right here. Do you know how unusual that is for a church in America? Isn't that wonderful? That we would enjoy his good promises and share his image forever. God has gone to extraordinary lengths bring about the completion of that promise. Now, often around here, if you've been here long, part of Church on Mill, you've seen the images that we use to describe the story of the Bible. These six images encapsulate the story from Genesis to Revelation. The hope is that we would talk about it enough that you would be dreaming about them, and the next time you're in a restaurant with a friend and an opportunity comes up to share the gospel, you could pull out the napkin, draw those six images, hand it to that person so they have a tangible, visible reminder of what the story of the Bible is. So in like 30 seconds, here it is. The first one is creation. 
God created the world. He made it good. He made it perfect. Nothing was wrong. Nothing was bad. Harmony, shalom existed between God, between people, even between creation itself. Wow, pretty cool. Genesis 1 and 2. Didn't stay that way very long. Genesis 3, the fall. Mankind rebelled. They said, we want to be in charge. We know better than you do, God. Everything broken, busted, sad, hard, difficult in your life is a direct result of Genesis 3 and the way that has played itself out in every human life since. Genesis 3 is the fall into sin. Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, so this is the first book in the Bible if you're not familiar with it, shows us things go from bad to worse. And then we hit Genesis 12, first arrow there. That stands for promise. This is where God makes the promise I just indicated to you a few minutes ago. Then from Genesis 12 until the end of Malachi, there's this. A cycle in history coming over and over and over again that I'll talk to you about in a few minutes. Jesus comes. He brings about redemption. He lives a perfect life, dies a sacrificial, substitutionary death. Not the stuff of myth. I believe Jesus actually came. That he was actually nailed to a cross. That he actually died. And then he actually rose again. If you don't believe those things, you're not a Christian. We're rooted in the historical facts of history. If someone rises from the dead, we should pay attention to them. That's weird. Right? Okay? The double arrow stands for church, meaning this time between the redemption, the, the death, burial, resurrection, and going back to heaven of Jesus, and the crown, the king returning, is called the church age, this period in time in which Jesus makes himself known through his people, his body of Christ, of which we are all a part. So in the Bible, that is from Acts through Jude, maybe into Revelation, depending on how you want to look at that. The crown stands for restoration. The king is coming back, and things are going to be better than they were back in that first tree. That's the story of the Bible. Christian, you can do that. You can share that with someone. Right? You just heard the entire Bible in 60 seconds. And you're saying, why does it take him so long every week then? In all of these six acts, the promise and the plan of God are exactly the same. He's always been about redeeming a people for himself. Now, Psalm 78 has a lot of history in it but it only deals with one section, really, of this whole story, and that's the first arrow, the promise. It's articulating mainly the story of God's work through the nation of Israel. In fact, Psalm 78 is dealing with less than a dozen Old Testament books. So those of you who have maybe read these early dozen or so books in the Bible, the people that are in Psalm 78, that are behind it, are folks like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, and David. Maybe you grew up hearing those stories. Maybe you're hearing those names for the very first time. Maybe kids, youth, you heard a story about some of them this morning. 
If you're unfamiliar with all of this, it's okay. The best place to start learning is right here today. Don't let yourself feel like you're so far behind you can't catch up. That's not true. Take one of those Bibles from under the chair, take it home with you, and start in the second book. It's called Exodus. Read it this week, and you will have covered most of what we'll talk about this morning. Now, there's two separate recountings of the history of Psalm 78. So, in other words, within Psalm 78, you're reading through it, and there's actually two different things being described. It drove me nuts the first half of this week. I beat my head against the wall several times trying to understand what was going on. It is a hard passage. But think of it simply like uh, two flashbacks in a movie. So you see a movie, and there's a moment when the character has a flashback. What's happening? Remembering something that took place before that's impacting where he or she is today, right? And then later on, invariably, there's another flashback that often covers a portion of the same time, but then stretches even further. That's exactly what this psalm does. Verses 9 to 39 talk about God's people being rescued out of slavery and then into the wilderness. That whole section, that's what it's about. So flashback one, out of Egypt, into the desert. So like you felt yesterday, and you will feel later today. Goodness, it's hot. Second flashback, verse 40 to 72, talk about in the wilderness and then into the promised land. So the organizing principle in the the author's mind is where we live today, flashback one, flashback two. Are you with me so far? All right, you're doing good. Both flashbacks illustrate God's faithfulness despite Israel's unfaithfulness. That's what both of them do. Both of them say, God fulfills his promises. People don't do a very good job of following along with him. That's what they do. We can't read all of it, but I want to give you a representative sample, okay? So, flashback one. Out of Egypt and into the wilderness. Uh, Fairly often I talk with people who say, I can't believe in God. I don't have faith. Or... I used to, but now I have doubts because God hasn't given me any proof. You ever heard anything like that? I could believe the stuff in the Bible if I saw stuff happen like happened in the Bible. You ever heard that? Uh, It just seems to me like these are made up stories because I see nothing like that happening today. I can't believe because I don't see any miracles. I spent a good part of my latter years as a teenager into my 20s, even while working in a church, struggling with that kind of thought process myself. So if that's you today, hey, I've been there. I understand. I'd love to visit with you. But listen to the underlying claim that's behind that. It's it's something like this. I don't believe well or at all because God hasn't done anything miraculous for me. That's the underlying assumption, that if God did something miraculous, then I would believe him. That seems to be a logical thought. I don't think you're stupid if that's what you think. That's exactly what I thought. But watch what we see in this psalm. 
Okay? So jump down to verse 9. Psalm 78, verse 9. The Epiphramites. All right, you already lost me. What the heck is an Epiphramite? Israel, when they entered the promised land, had, was made up of 12 tribes. So 12 big clans of people. The biggest, most powerful tribe was the tribe of Epiphram. So that group of people were called the Epiphramites. They were expected to become the powerhouse out of the tribes. So as they moved in to conquer the people that were living in Israel, which is a topic for another day, the biggest group was the Epiphramites, all right? The Epiphramites, armed with a bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zon. And he's going to tell them what those were. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the water stand up like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and at night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink, abundantly as from the deep. He made streams out of the rock and caused waters to flow out like rivers. Yet, they saw all of that. Stuff I doubt anyone in this room has ever seen anything like. Like a, a whole red sea in front of you, behind you are the Egyptians ready to kill you. This old guy stands up praying with his arms up. And the water, and they go through it. I've never seen anything that cool. That's pretty awesome. And then he did all this other stuff for years. Verse 17, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most holy high one in the desert. They tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock with the water so the water gushed out and the streams overflowed. So, miraculous water flowing out in the desert. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? What a foolish people we are. Friends, it's, it's not, we, we don't disbelieve or doubt because we haven't seen miracles. These people saw miracles and they still disbelieved. They still doubted. The problem isn't God's, God's inactivity. The problem is our desire to be in control and in charge and do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it. This single passage completely overturns the view that people don't believe and don't obey because they haven't seen anything big. Nothing gets any bigger than Moses doing this and water breaking open. You can't top that one. If they saw that and they still struggled with sin and doubt and disbelief, 
why would we not be patient with each other and encourage each other to believe? It's just nonsensical. Those are some big miracles. But verse 11, they forgot his works and the wonders he'd shown them. Verse 17, yet they still stand more against him. Friends, doubt, disobedience, rejection of God are not caused by lack of miracles. They're caused by disbelief. As Proverbs told us, the problem is always our hearts. Psalm 78 puts it this way. Look at verse 22. They did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. All right, God, you did that for us. You delivered me. You got me out of a real jam, but I still trust myself more than you do. Verse 32, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they didn't believe. Verse 37, their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to the covenant. The truth is, if I or you had seen the plagues of Egypt or the parting of the Red Sea or the miracle of food and water in the desert every day for decades, we would be no better off. We would still wrestle with these issues because we have the same hearts that they did. All right, flashback two. You ready? So that was Egypt into the Sinai Desert in which this cycle of history repeated itself. I'll tell you what that cycle is in a moment. Flashback two is the wilderness into the promised land, specifically to King David. The pattern seen in that flashback number two and in flashback number one is this. There's four acts to it, and it's exactly the same in both of the stories stretching over hundreds of years. Here's a pattern. God does the same thing both times. First, God intervenes in some miraculous, amazing, gracious, undeserved, astonishing way. God acts first. He responds. He moves out of the tremendous love and power that he has. Amen? Act two, he cares. God shows stunning care and provision for his people. Like astonishing care. Way beyond what someone ever could claim their right is. God cares for his people. So he initiates, he intervenes, and he cares. And then between act two and three, something happens. That something is God's people forget, they disbelieve, they disobey. God intervenes. He expresses love and care. His people respond, they're amazed. And then they as they get away from that event, they begin to doubt and question and struggle and forget and believe something else will be better than God. Then act three, God doesn't like that. God will stand for you to have no other God. So God disciplines. God judges. God brings wrath and is right and is good. 
And that wrath brings hardship and suffering. And then the very thing that the people deserved, in Act 4, God looks on and he has mercy. God is a merciful God. And so he acts in mercy and he intervenes and the cycle starts itself over again. That's what happens in those two acts from Egypt into the wilderness, from the wilderness into the promised land. Where else does that happen? This is a mirror. It happens in my life. And it happens in your life. Therefore, we would do really well to try and learn from their mistakes, right? Every time God disciplines, there's a separation. When God brings judgment on sin, there invariably is a separation. Some people reveal that they didn't believe in the first place and they wander away. Other people repent, respond, bow their knee to the Father, and by grace, they continue walking with Him. Friends, that will happen in our church, that will happen in your home, that will happen in your neighborhood, in your school. That's what happens. The gospel to some is a stench. To others, it's the aroma of Christ. You have no control over that. You cannot manipulate that. It is not your responsibility care, be brokenhearted, but don't try to control that. God is sovereign. God's sovereign. But what we see in this is there are people that respond to the promises of God. There are genuine believers. And what this psalm shows us is that God is faithful to his promise. This side of history, so post-Jesus, so we've jumped up on our icons, our images, to that double arrow now. Are you still tracking with me? I told you this was going to be hard work. Don't give up, please. There's a sucker punch at the end. And it's going to feel good. God's faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. He saved you from sin and a sure future in hell. That's way more dramatic than saving Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He provided all that you need to grow up into maturity as Christians, which is way more dramatic than food and water in a desert. He's given you his word as his guide, which is way more dramatic than a cloud in the sky and fire by night. He put his Holy Spirit within you, inside, which is way more dramatic than him simply dwelling in a tent and he gave himself, King Jesus, which is way better than King David that only pointed forward to him. We are so much better off than the people in Psalm 78 were. I think we're better off. Do you know what that means? Dust. Awesome. That's Amber Alert, not awesome. Does somebody know what an Amber Alert means? All right. 
Stand up for us and pray. One person. Great. Amen. Thank you, Hansley. All right. So that was the first point. Second one's going to be shorter. Be on guard. There's a pattern to history. God's faithful to his promises. There's a pattern to history. God intervenes. God cares. We wander. God disciplines. God shows mercy to some. Think for a moment, not about yourself. What about the heartache that must cause God? He reaches, he stoops to those who don't deserve anything. He gives of himself even to the extent of death in Christ. We're like a, the couple that one of us is constantly leaving and sleeping around. The psalm tells us how God feels. Verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him. God grieves. When you and I sin, we're not simply breaking some arbitrary rule. We're hurting the best lover that exists. If you know where your children are, would you turn your phone off? 
They tested God again and again and again and provoked the Holy One. They did not remember His power on the day when He redeemed them from the foe, when He performed His signs in Egypt and His marvels in the fields of Zon. The pain of our waywardness must be so hard for God. And yet He's not like us. He continues to love. It's amazing. Amazing. God is a merciful, gracious God. How do we know that? You are here today and you're drawing another breath. And you are hearing His Word. And if you're not a Christian, you have the chance today to respond to Him and be saved. And if you are, but you've been wayward, you have a chance today to repent and renew a vibrant walk with Christ. God is a gracious, merciful God. God is faithful to his promises, even at great cost to himself. And if there's a cyclical pattern to history, then we would do well to learn how not to repeat the same mistakes of those who've gone before us. How? How does that cycle get interrupted? Is that possible? Is it possible that those four acts don't happen in exactly the same way every day for the rest of your life? Is it possible that by the grace and mercy and power of God, there will be a splitting between the act two, God displays and lovingly cares, and act three, God has to discipline? Is it possible that in between the two, some people, by God's grace, will walk faithfully with him? Is that... Is that conceivable. Yes, but how? How? Religion would say, try really hard. But that's not Christianity. Christianity does not say, try harder next time. It says, give up. And it says, do something in particular when you give up. And that something might surprise you. It turns out the key to both not repeating the failures of those before us and in an ongoing, amazingly increasing way, enjoy and obey God, can be summarized in one word. And if I was a betting man, I'd put lunch on it. I don't think you'd guess it. It's one word. And it isn't Jesus, by the way. It's remember. Remember. God-centered retention, God-focused memory will save you from repeating this cycle over and over and over and over and over. It's that simple. people of Psalm 78 forgot. And because they forgot, they rebelled. And because they rebelled, they got their rear ends kicked. You don't have to go through that. Don't forget. Remember. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Intentionally rehearsing the great saving acts of God every day 
in a way that we're asking God to massage His truths down into our minds and hearts. That is God's means to protect us from forgetting, disbelieving, disobeying, and thus entering into His discipline. So Christian, when was the last time you recounted God's mercies in saving you? Intentionally walking yourself back through, here's what God has done. If you're not in the habit of that, that is why you're repeating this cycle. You're not taking the remember pill every day. Are you aware of the ways today that God is keeping you safe and saved despite your very best efforts? Are you rehearsing that stuff? Are you looking when you're in the Bible, not for facts, but for a person, for a God who saved you and who's now in you and who wants to talk to you? Are you letting those truths be the very air that you breathe so you don't forget? I hope so. God's faithful to his promises. Remember those four questions we asked last week, if you were here? Who is God? What has Christ done for us? As a result of what Christ has done, who are we? And it's only then we rightly ask about our behavior. What should we do? That is the best way I know to not forget to be renewing your mind in the truth of who God is and what God has done. Remember, all of this is grace. It's the grace of God. You and I are prone to spiritual memory loss. The way you'll walk faithfully with God without having to enter into repeated discipline over and over and over and over and over and over and over, which, by the way, God, those, are, those are the tender mercies of God to discipline you for your good. I'm thankful for the ways God's disciplined me. But if I can avoid the spanking, I'd sure like to. The way that happens is to remember, remember, remember. All of this is God's grace. 150 years ago, somebody wrote this about Psalm 117. Psalm 78. Maybe about Psalm 117. God is a sovereign and will do what he pleases. He only is fit to govern the world. He rejects Epiphram and chooses Judah. He rejects Shiloh and chooses Jerusalem. He rejects Saul and chooses David. That's all in Psalm 78. Epiphram, Shiloh, and Saul have no right to complain because no injustice is done. Judah, Jerusalem, and David have no right to boast because mercy is shown. That could not be clearer in Psalm 78. All of this is grace. I'm not saying by means of your remembering and trying really hard, then God somehow owes you. I'm saying you're positioning yourself in the bathroom where the shower is instead of in the living room expecting to have a shower there. If you lost me there, listen to last week. Now, are you encouraged? Are you refreshed by the Word of God? Do you personally feel more persuaded that God loves you, God's faithful to you, God has good in mind for you? Do you? I'm really glad. That is not what this psalm is for. 
we hear God's truth through the hearing aids of our own selfishness. The purpose of this psalm is not to encourage you in your walk with Christ. Look at verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Things that we've heard and known. Things our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. But tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, His might and the wonders that He has done. What are we supposed to tell them? He established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a new law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Why? Why is this psalm in the Bible? That the next generation might know him. The children yet to be born, arise and tell them to their children, so that they should, here it is, set their hope in God and not forget his works, but keep his commands that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to him. Parents, especially the parents in the room with kids at home, you have been given the most wonderful, glorious of all tasks given. That's to tell your kids who God is and what he's done so that they can set their hope in God, so that the kids that come after them can do the same thing, and the ones after them. There's five generations in those first eight verses. Psalm 78 is about the next generation. It is not about you. It's about the next generation. Parents, pass on the commands and mercies of God in everyday moments. Rehearse the story so the children you have been entrusted with can have an opportunity to set their hopes in God's. God, that is their joy to hear from you. Later today, we will post a list of appropriate age-guided resources on the front page of our website. I hope you'll look at it. We want to help you. We want to make this as easy as possible. Pick one that's age-appropriate to your child, Buy it, and simply, this does not take more than five or ten minutes a day. In church, we are the reserves for kids whose parents neglect their task. And we are the support to those who are doing it well. We're not simply here for us. We're here to pass on these truths so other generations can know Jesus. And I'll end with this. I, um, the, the jury's still out on my kids, right? One of them's sitting right here. I love you. One's over with the sweet people doing Gospel Project. I don't know how they're going to turn out. So far, they're way better than I were at their age. God's intervened in both of their lives in really wonderful, miraculous ways. And Abby, I wasn't planning to say this. You, in particular, your heart is soft and you respond to God. I'm so blessed by that. I love you. 
I find much of the parenting advice today that Christians talk about to each other, and that's in the Christian books, to be completely unwise and unhelpful. Your goal as a parent is not to raise a smart, moral, ethical child. You can do that and do it really well and send your child to hell. Morals and ethics will not save your child. Them sitting at the table and eating their food is important. But it's way less important than them coming to see they have a sick, dead heart that God has to replace. Our job is to raise children who know they're morally bankrupt so that they eventually will find the love and truth and grace and mercy of God at the cross of Christ. That is our job. And then to disciple them in such a way that they will be Jesus freaks, willing to go anywhere and make any sacrifice necessary to help other people come to know the same God. And if they chew with their mouth open, they chew with their mouth open. And if they get B's or C's in school, who cares? Don't raise a good child. Raise a Christian. Tad, would you come and pray for us? May our kids be raised in such a way that they know how to not forget. And may we model that for them. Because if we say it with our lips and we don't live it with our lives, they will throw it all away. Would you pray for us, brother?